Professional. It is professional every time we do this. Welcome to another episode of the Brown Trout and Bridgebeards podcast. Bridgebeards? Bridgebeards. I, I already in the first seven seconds, seven seconds of the podcast, I can't speak. Uh, I've got Grant here. Matt. Matt. And we've got our guest, uh, Andy Selvig, with us tonight. Hello. Uh, hanging out in Cottage Grove, Minnesota for this uh, evening's recording. Uh, as usual, we just got done uh, eating about 40 pounds of chicken wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, enjoying a couple nice ice cold hams. I think I had 32 of the 40. 32 of the 40? Okay. They weren't too bad then. Uh, Matt did a decent job. They were amazing. They were okay. They weren't my best, but they were pretty good. There's always room for improvement when it uh, comes to the it. chicken wings. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Andy, the, thanks for coming out, sitting oh, down with you. us, hanging out. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully we can learn some stuff tonight. That's always the goal, at least. Yeah. First off, anybody been fishing? I know I haven't. No, I, uh, <laughs> November for me, I haven't even gone out ice fishing yet, um, which is kind of sad. But I do not ice fish, but I will go if invited. But yeah, so far I haven't been invited. So. <laughs> I don't even know where my ice fishing stuff is. I think I, I loaned it to my father-in-law or something. And then it's it's been with him since then? Probably disappeared. All my ice fishing stuff is still in a square four-gallon bucket. It's about all you need. And it's probably all in disrepair and doesn't work. So <laughs> I mean I mean I went full out this year. I went and bought like a proper rod case for all my jig and rods. Had every intention on ice fishing when I was up in Minaqua over the holidays. And then uh it was thirty eight degrees raining and two feet of slush on the lakes and really not safe to walk out on. So hmm. that is currently still sitting in my garage where I left it when I unpacked the car and we got back. We did a trip, oh God, when I was uh, early 20s when I lived in South Dakota. And we would go, uh, one year we went up to Bay, but uh, another year we went to North Dakota and Devil's Lake. And it was like the previous week had been like 50 degree weather. And it was like 50 degree weather when we were out on Devil's Lake. And uh, there was like rivers on the <laughs> ice. Like oh, wherever yeah. somebody had drilled a hole, it swirl. Was it swirling down the yeah, holes? Yeah, it was. You could hear it, and from from camping, we'd you know just like uh, like five or six guys, and we'd all have our own little uh, ice shacks, and then we'd play cards out in the middle. And, oh yeah, but you, yeah, you could hear rivers, and uh-huh. you're always you're always standing on like two to four inches of water yeah. on top of the ice. But it was like twenty eight inches of ice underneath it. It was all right. solid, but. It's really surreal. It's still kind of eerie though to it see is. that. It's like the toilet bowl, you know. Well, uh, I've had it factor on Lake of the Woods on. before, where it you've got the main ice, and then you'll have a warm day or something, and you'll have the snow will melt. Yeah, and then the it'll refreeze. So you'll drill through like three, four inches of ice, and then you hit nothing. Oh yeah, and then you oh. hit the main ice. Yeah, it, that. That gets your heart thumping a little bit when you realize there's nothing underneath you. 
I've yep. been on some really late, scary ice that it must have been like 12 to 14 inches and it was like completely honeycombed and I would run oh, a auger through it and it just, it just went down through like butters yep. <laughs> all the way down. Yeah. And then you like take a step back, like, okay, I'm going to kind of try and head back to where I, where I started from. I probably should not have been out on that day, but I, fish, I fishing was good. I was on Lake Superior one time north of Duluth and this was uh, March-ish. And I saw guys out on the ice casting out into the open water. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, this looks like fun. I should do this. So I grabbed my fish and stuff, and I walked out on the ice. And you could see waves coming in. Lapping over the ice? It. Nope. They would go underneath the ice, and they would <laughs> lift you up and then bring you back down. Because the ice was only probably like three, four inches thick at this time. There was a... It's on YouTube, and if I can find the link, I'll put it in the show notes. But there's a there's a YouTube video of these guys fishing the harbor down in Milwaukee. And they're ice fishing. They took a boat out to this sheet of ice that was disconnected. I think I've seen this. They're ice fishing. They'd hook into these trout, and through the open water, you can see these fish jump up. Huh. And they're pulling them, you know, trying to get them back under the sheet and pull them up. But they had their boat you know, anchored up on this ice sheet and they're sitting on buckets, ice fishing. It's like an eight by 10 sheet of ice. Yeah. It's with not big. Two holes drilled in it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Crazy. But I've seen the old timers in Monaco in the springtime, they'll take two by 12 planks, throw them out from shore. Cause the, you know, it's disconnected from the shore to get out to the ice, <laughs> the ice fish. And then hopefully it hasn't receded too much further by the end of the day. So they can get back to shore. But I was half tempted. I had a, uh, on the Mississippi the other day, I had like a chunk of ice come floating down and I, I stopped it, you know, cause I'm like, uh, you know, thigh deep mm-hmm. water and, and, and like, I could tell that it could support my weight. And I was like, Oh, I should just like climb up on this thing and go drifting for a while. See what <laughs> Give it a shot. Yeah. It's the, uh, the ice, the ice drift boat that the, you could use. The clacka ice. Yeah. <laughs> clacka ice. Exactly. So it sounds like you have, you've gotten out ice fishing or well fishing near ice, at least this near, winter a little bit. Yeah. When you go to the Mississippi, there's, there's just, just tons of shelf ice just floating down the, the section of the river that the power plant doesn't warm up. Okay. Like, uh, where it warms up, you get an occasional chunk of ice, but most of the ice is kind of floating on the, on the cold side of the river. Mm-hmm. And, um, I fished there before. It's weird. It's like hot I don't even think of it as weird. You, oh yeah, you, you jump in and it's forty degree water, and it, it, it you, you notice you expect to freeze all yeah. suddenly, and it's like no, it's actually pretty comfortable. Yep. So you're you're warm. Yeah, I think we've talked about that section before. Yeah. You're kind of warm where your water's up to your waders, and you're like, oh, it's actually kind well, of comfortable. What's really out. surreal if you ever go out on like a five degree day, and like actually getting in the water seems yeah. warm. Mm-hmm. Like Warm, warmer into a hot than tub. should be. Yeah, it feels like bath water when it's like five. <laughs> yeah. that, that was the day that I went. Okay, up, yeah. And we've blown this spot up before, so it's up in Monticello. And, and, and the water's steaming all around you. Yep, and, yep. And like you said, big icebergs are floating down the mm-hmm, river. Mm-hmm. And you guys are out there, what, I'm assuming targeting bass? Mostly bass. Um, you get a stray catfish once in a while. Sometimes a carp will actually come chow a fly and... Um, uh, walleyes are pretty common. You don't really get them every day, but you know, every third day a walleye will show up. Mm-hmm. That's a nice, nice little surprise every now and then on a fly rod. I know that's on my, you know, my bucket list of stuff to actually. It's get a lot on a easier fly than rod. you think. Um, I catch a lot of walleyes just right in town. Like Minnehaha Creek is just a great little walleye spot. 
Um, really walleyes on the fly is just a matter of finding an area where walleyes are consistently in less than five feet of water. And then you can fly fish them pretty easily. Okay. And they're, they're, they're very willing to take any kind of, you know, any smallmouth pattern will work or a pike fly will work right on them. So. Excellent. Yeah. Walleyes on the fly or bass. Or bass. Take your pick. Uh, have you done any uh, trout fishing yet this this winter? Um, I was over on a tributary of the Rush the other day, and uh, it was a little bit murked up. I think somebody had was fishing upstream of me, and they had, there's a this stream that I fish has a lot of um, a lot of silt in it. Okay, uh, a lot of long stretches of just really silty stuff. So if anybody goes upstream from you, they just they just clouded you out. Yeah, and uh, so it was clearing up through the day, but it's kind of nice to have a little bit of dirt in the water because the mm-hmm. fish get a little bit bitier than when it's like perfectly clear. So it was, yeah, it was a pretty good day. Yeah. Yeah. That crystal clear water stuff can get a little, a little treacherous as far as trying to get the Well, fish. that's how you know if the fish are moving. Yeah. If the, <laughs> you know, if it's super gin clear and the fish are moving around, you know, they're feeding at that point. It's just nothing to do with your shadow or anything like mm-hmm. that. So Andy, um, how did you get started fly fishing? Were you um, always a fly fisher or gear or? No, I started out with gear and then I had a brother who's 10 years older and moved on to Fort Collins, Colorado, and he got into it. And I think just as being a younger brother, I just kind of always patterned after hobbies. Mm-hmm. I didn't take up downhill skiing. He was a big skier, but, um, but you know, as far as fly fishing, I would go out to visit Colorado and we would do that. And, um, I really just kind of started doing it, uh, in South Dakota, I got interested in that. And, uh, I think I got like a six, seven weight and it was like a Cortland rod. And it was like a hundred bucks, something like that. I still have my Cortland rod in the garage. I wish I still had mine. It is super butter stick. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I had. And, um, I think Grant helped move that rod. I did. I, th- I, the case that it's in, <laughs> it I thought goofy. it was like, uh, I don't know, like corrugated, it's, I feel like it was rectangular. something, right. I feel like, feel like it was something I would have put like, I don't know, building a shed or something like that. Kind of, kind of also ironically, I started out fishing for walleyes Did on you? a fly rod. It was, it was initially largemouth bass. South Dakota had a lot of uh, little impoundments on small creeks and rivers and, and uh, they were just good largemouth bass ponds. Um, but also there'd be some walleyes sometimes. And then, the natural lakes that South Dakota has are dishpan lakes, so they don't have a lot of depth. Mm-hmm. And what's kind of cool about that, um, you might have, you know, something the size of Lake Minnetonka, but out in the middle, it's no deeper than 20 feet. Okay. Um, and it'll have a lot of adjacent sloughs that uh, the walleyes and other fish, they'll, they'll leave the main lake and they'll go into these sloughs at nighttime looking for forage. Um, but also on, the, on these dishpan lakes, you know, guys that have these huge walleye boats that go out all summer long. Um, there's no walleye opener or closer. There's just walleyes fishing all year round. And okay. um, a lot of those guys that have the expensive boats in the springtime when the fish are coming up on gravel to, to spawn, you know, near, near the shorelines, um, they just leave the boats at home and everybody's out in the neoprene waders with a mm-hmm. minnow bucket and some Mr. Twisters. Yeah. And, and uh, so if you're a fly fisher, you know, you can, you know, you can hold your own. I, I wish, guys. I wish I would have had two handed rods back in those, those sticks. That was, that's gotta be, oh my gosh, 25, 30 <clears> years ago. But, uh, if I would have had two handed rods, I would have had a blast back then. But yeah. I was, I was, uh, um, 
primarily what I do is I take a spin outfit with me and just bring a fly rod along just in case the walleyes are like really, really close and you know, just see if I can catch them on a fly rod. And a lot of times I could, um, my first really big walleye is like a nine pound walleye. I got on on a Dahlberg. Holy cow. Below a, an impoundment uh, called Lake Vermilion. And then uh, it, was, it was the Vermilion River. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, about uh, 25 miles west of Sioux Falls. Okay. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. That's a big walleye. Yeah. I wouldn't be mad about that. There's Spin a gear or fly gear. There's a back channel of the Mississippi, like a mile from here where, mm-hmm. um, a guy caught, I just guessing because I saw the picture, a 32 inch ish mm-hmm. walleye, and it's five, six feet of water. That's incredible. Yeah. 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 And I've been down there and I've seen, you know, four foot pike jumping two feet out of the water. You know, the shad will move in there. And that's, what's, that's what's nice about targeting in rivers is those fish so often move very shallow, especially, you know, low light conditions, nighttime and what have you. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned two-handed rods. Mm-hmm. You like the spay swinging? For, for, for me, the, uh, the two-handed rod replaces what I used to do with a spinning rod. Right. Um, as far as, uh, uh, you know, you have a lot of advantage with spin gear in that, uh, you know, if you think about, we do, when we fly fish and you do streamer patterns, we have all kinds of different streamer things, but you just have so much more variation with, uh, with lures and you have, um, you have vibration and just, you know, more flash and just, mm-hmm. you know, but, um, you know, I prefer fly fishing. Um, and I pretty much, you know, I just, I just, I just never, I never spin fish anymore since I got my hand on, on two handed rods. Um, there's just, there's so many situations where, uh, you have no back cast room and you want to get out a considerable distance out in the water. And then as you get farther out in the water, you also want something that's going to have a sink tip or something that will, will dredge down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's, that's, you know, skagit heads on small switch rods and small two hand rods are, are, uh, are, are just about right for that. So if you were going fly fishing tomorrow, you would bring along a two handed rod. Uh, well, it depends on what I'm doing. If I'm, if I'm going, uh, yeah, like the Mississippi for the smallmouth and the walleyes and, um, yeah. But if I, if I was to take making a trip back to South Dakota, in fact, I've, uh, this past summer, I've made a few trips back there and had a blast just throwing, uh, two handed rods and some of my old haunts that, mm. that I haven't, um, haven't been overly productive, but I've, I've, have caught a few nice fish doing that, but what, uh, so we've talked about a lot of fish. What's your like go-to, like, what would you rather fish for? What I'd rather fish for, um, Atlantic salmon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What would you rather okay. fish for? Well, yeah, you can actually, um, uh, Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah. Uh, over, uh, is it, uh, Michigan? Yeah. Ontario border. Yep. Yep. Yeah. They run all the way up there, huh? Yeah. Um, no, they had a, um, they were doing a uh, restocking program with uh, some fish that are kind of imprinted in that area. And then they, they, uh, they migrate out into Lake Huron, but then they come back into that area. And I think they go into parts of Lake Michigan quite a bit, but um, if you want to fish Atlantic salmon in this area, but um, I think for around here, it's, it's gotta be steelhead. Yeah. Uh, especially if I can get them on a swung fly. Uh uh, and I also mentioned earlier, I like chuck and duck for them, but I really much prefer the, the swung fly. Right. Yep. 
So I want to jump back real quick. So with two-handed, is that primarily is is that your rod set up no matter what kind of fishing you're going out? Um, if I'm on a trout stream, not really. Okay. Um, I would try uh, a small two-hander for fishing like the rush with, with some streamers, okay. um, but you can do that just as well with a single-hand rod with, right. because the dimensions of that river are pretty small. Because they have those, mic- what are they, microspace? Microspace, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, spay casting is not necessarily a rod. It's just a style of casting. So, I mean, you, it's a fancy word for roll cast. It, it, it is. And a lot of times when you, when you're trout fishing and you're roll casting, a lot of your roll cast will actually morph over into what would be more technically called a spay cast. Okay. Um, that's, uh, uh, the technical description of a roll cast is something that almost nobody actually ever uses. So when you actually roll cast and if you have a decent roll cast, it, it tends to melt itself into something that's more of a spay cast. A spay cast is kind of a dynamic roll cast with a change of direction. You're always trying to reposition in the line somewhere other than where it's ended up at. Okay. So you're trying to get back upstream or back out into the river from, from a hang down position. And, uh, technically a roll cast is just, uh, it's a very static flipping out of the line back out in the direction that it came from. Okay. So it's not necessarily useful for fishing. It's, it's useful for just straightening your line back out and then doing something else with it. Okay. Um, so, so obviously you have plenty of experience with these two handed rods. Mm-hmm. Let's say somebody was looking to get into it or, or wanted to, you know, dip their feet into it. Do you have any recommendations for, you know, how somebody could introduce themselves or, or at least, try it out or, or maybe a, a simple outfit that they could try out. So you were, t- you were talking about um, those lines that are made for single handed rods. Mm-hmm. So the e- easiest way is just to start with your single handed rod and get uh, an OPST line, those commando heads. Okay. And you know, um, easiest thing to do like for a running line is just go find like uh, one of your old eight weight lines that the front end of the line is all chewed up and just chop off the head and just use the, uh, the running line that comes with it. Usually your running line will be in pretty decent shape even when the rest of the line is kind of fried up and you just, what I get into my backing all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, especially around here, you're going to, most of your line's going to be fine except for the last 10 feet. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so a, a cheap way to do a running line originally is for for your original setup is just yeah, just just an old running line, anything they have, chop it off, and then put like it up. You put like an eight inch loop into the line and just secure it with like two nail knots. Okay. And what that eight inch loop allows you to do is you uh, when you get your shooting head like a commando, uh, it's coiled up, and you can you can actually just do the loop loop connection through the the loop at the back of the head, and then just pass the entire head through that eight inch loop that you've created in your running line, and then pull it tight. They'll cinch it, it down. It, yeah, and it'll be right there. And the same thing in reverse when you want to take your head off and change to something else, you just coil it up, pass it through the loop, and then it pops right back off. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'd say like just you know, um, yes. Yeah, so, so if you have like an eight weight rod. And you could probably get like a 275 to 325 grain commando head and maybe just a, a 10 foot chunk of T10 or T11. Okay. Did you, are you familiar with what that is? I know it's the sinking rate, right? It's not the sinking rate. It's the, um, it's the grains per foot. 
foot. So T11 means that each foot is uh, 11 grains. Oh, okay. It's just it's just tungsten uh, impregnated uh, sinking line. It's, it's just it's, it's it's a level material, and what's kind of good about that is when you're if you're using a weighted fly or if you're using a bigger fly because it's not a tapered line, rather it's just a level line. It kicks that stuff over. It kicks that big bushy stuff over really really well. So the, the shooting head goes first, and then the sinking part. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if you want to sink tip, I mean, you have an incredible amount of options these days. So, um, you could put a floating tip on there. You could put an intermediate tip. Uh, the, the T material I'm talking about is just what's handy about it is that it's really cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, uh, you can buy a tip for, you know, 10 bucks, you know, 10 foot tip. Uh, if you, uh, a lot of times you just call out somebody that's on the West coast or someplace that's that does a lot of steelhead stuff like that. And they'll have just big 300 yard spools of this stuff and they'll just, cut Oh, off, you can get a, they'll section. cut off the section that you need. And, and, and that, that's really the best way to go. Yeah. I know those OPST guys in the last few years have really kind of blown up and, you know, as far as the whole switch and spay and all that kind of two handed stuff, they're the. Well, the best thing about those lines is that if you just want to try it out with a single hand rod that you already own, mm-hmm. they have heads that are perfectly, I, th- I think that head design started out mostly in mind for single handed rods. And then they will work really well on the two handed rods, especially like the switch rods or shorter switch rods, but they'll also work on a full spay rod. Um, full spay rod, you might want a little bit longer line. Those OPSTs are, they're pretty truncated. Yeah. So really what's, what's your, you know, what's the difference between your spay and your switch rod? Um, I don't really consider there to be a difference. Um, originally I think what they were saying is that, uh, switch rods are kind of like, they have more of, uh, the same kind of action as like a fast single handed rod. Whereas a spay rod was considered a little bit groovier, maybe a more parabolic action or just, just something, uh, different. Um, but I think now when they do, uh, they do a rod that they call a switch and they do a rod that they call uh, a spay rod or it's, it's actually technically incorrect to call it a spay rod. Spay is just a river in uh, Scotland okay. where spay casting, you know, spay casting can be done on any, any fly rod that you want. It, it's not it's just the method. It, it's, that just, you're it's just a method. Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, going back a little, diving a little deeper, maybe we'll trigger your brain a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you said you started out single. Um, what, uh, you know, what, what did you see? What opened your eyes? Who did you meet? What got you into this two-handed game? Uh, Bob Nasby. Do you, are you guys familiar with Bob? Mm-hmm. Familiar, yeah. yes. So I took a casting lesson from him. And, and he just brought out this, uh, oh, he had this ridiculous 15-foot, 9-10 weight rod with him and then he had like a, a long belly line on it. <laughs> so what long belly is, is where all this kind of originally came from was, uh, uh, Atlantic salmon fishing in Scotland and, uh, you know, any kind of a shooting head, like a Skagit or a Scandi or PST lines are pretty relatively recent development. But, uh, what it used to be is it just double tapered <laughs> fly lines that, uh, you could boom, you know, a hundred foot cast across the river with like a, a 15 or a 16 foot rod. And then over time they started developing shooting heads and, and, and shrinking them up. But as we had kind of this long belly line, which is very traditional kind of, mm-hmm. you know, back when it was uh green heart rods with silk lines. And then later it was bamboo. 
Mm-hmm. But they still, to this day, they still make some traditional lines. So he had a traditional line on it. He was just booming these casts like 120 feet out into the lake. <laughs> and, and at that time, I could only, you know, uh, with a single hand rod, I, I think my best cast like straining was like 40 or 50 feet. And I was like, Oh my God. I saw him do that. It's like, oh, okay. I, I'm, I am learning how to do this. <laughs> and, and the guys who do it well, it looks so effortless. You know, it's just like a couple little movements and boom, you know, they're all the way across. the room. Yeah. And a lot of that I think has to do with the, um, the lines are so heavily grained that if you, if you set up a decent cast, they're just going to launch, mm-hmm. uh, with the more traditional lines, they're also, also heavily grained, but it's also spread out along a long, long stretch of line. So, uh, it takes a little bit more technique. These, these days they make it a lot easier to, to get into this, uh, with the shorter lines and, and, um, they're, they're almost, um, the way the lines are designed, uh, so much of the weight is at the very back of the head. And when you're doing a, a spay cast, you're using a D loop to, to form the cast. And, and there's so much uh, weight at that very top leg of that D loop when you're casting that it, it's almost, it's almost like throwing a spinning rod in some ways where, you know, if you're, if you're overhead casting with like just uh, your, your trout rod or a bass rod with a single handed line, uh, you're stretching out about, you know, 10 to 20 to 30, 40 feet of line back mm-hmm. behind you in a back cast. You get that all in perfect train yep. and sending it out. Whereas uh, the two handed rods and with the lines that designed, they, they, uh, there's actually um, about six to eight feet of the line. That's just designed to have the, the loading weight for your rod. Okay. And it's just, just right there, right behind your rod tip. So it, uh, that contributes to, making it easy to, to cast, but mm-hmm. also there, there is technique to it, but how long, so you took, uh, took the class with Nasby or took the lesson with Nasby, mm-hmm. you know, how long did it take you to start to feel comfortable where, you know, as you said, you're, you oh, know, you're okay. booming those shots out there. You know, what's, what's the, I know that from everything I've, I've tried, um, cause I bought a 13 foot loop a few years back. I've mm-hmm. played around with a few times in the lakes and to me, it's frustrating just cause I haven't probably spent enough time with it. It, but, it, it also might, what, what kind of line did you have set up on it? Oh, it's uh, I don't know. I don't even remember honestly to tell you. Did you, truth. did you buy it from somebody that had it set up well or I had my buddy up in Alaska. Um, he okay. was a loop pro deal or whatever. So he sold me the rod, told me what line to put on that rod. Okay. Okay. Um, so and to my knowledge, it's set up correctly. Was for it a Skagit or a Scandi? A Skagit. Skagit? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so it was just one of those, like, I know I need to spend more time with it, but I was curious for you who, you know, doing it a lot now, how, you know, how long did it take for you to actually start to feel comfortable and feel like you kind of know what you're doing? So to get comfortable with like a Skagit line or a Scandi line is, is a relatively small learning curve. Uh, one thing I always recommend is... Uh, use the smallest flies and the lightest flies and the sparsest flies that you think you can fish with for a given species. Okay. Uh, once you start bulking up and adding weight, spay casting becomes very difficult because what a, what a spay cast actually does is um, the line traveling forward after you've already let go of your forward cast is actually what needs to eject the fly out of the water or extract the fly out of the water. Okay. So when you're, um, 
you know, when you're overhead casting with your single hand rod, there's always a direct line of power right to you. So when you're pulling the fly out of the water, it's you pulling the fly out of the water via the rod and the line, and then you form a back cast and then you, you know, fling it forward. But since the fly is out of the water, um, there's always a direct connection to power to you. Whereas a spay cast at the end of your cast, the fly is still resting in the water. Right. And after you've let go of the cast, that fly line surging forward is what is going to lift it out is lifting your fly out of the water. Mm. So, um, that, that's, that's, that's kind of the challenge of it is, it's it's just getting used to, you know, if your fly is sunk a little bit too deep when you're making that forward cast, it's going to stick. Okay. And if your fly is actually pulling out of the water a little too early, you're actually, it's called a, that's called a blown anchor where the fly is coming out of the water before your cast is completed. And you'll get this big whistling sound and the, and the whole thing will just kind of climb skyward and just kind of flop over, but it won't won't really cast anywhere. So finding that perfect balance. And that's why you kind of start out with the smaller flies because they're more forgiving. But as you get into bigger flies and heavier flies, uh, your, your timing just has to be more spot on to timing and technique. Yep. Yep. Cause I've always heard that with that type of casting is that the anchor point is absolutely critical for, for when you're, you know, trying to get, get those cast correct mm-hmm. and get that fly out there. But that's good to know. Start mm-hmm. smaller, probably less chance of throwing a hook in the back of your head too. Ah, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun for some people. I don't know if it's fun for me. I almost got a hook in my back fat and that was a little bit like, like just right. Oh, like lower back. Yeah. Ooh, just it, it like where your, your skin is just really tough and like it, it, there was no pain to it, but it's just like, I'm trying to get this barbed hook out of me. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this uh, one time I had to pull a hook out of a guy's arm like the back tricep oh, area, no. that yeah. real tender <laughs> part. And it was like a big woolly bugger. And it was that, that made me always want to pinch my barbs because he did not pinch his barb. And as hard as I pulled, that hook would not come out. And we did the push the eye down with the mono loop and, and it just made hamburger out of the back of his arm. Oh. And, <laughs> I will I will forever pinch my barb or fish barbless hooks for that one one incident. Especially I, I, on bigger I'm trying flies. to get there and it's just um one thing that bums me out about uh barbed hooks is if a fish gets it in the gill rakers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the only thing that I always feel terrible about is like, oh god, I just killed a fish that I didn't want to, you know. Yeah. Do it otherwise, but Maybe they can survive, but I, and I don't really get that with steelhead very much. Steelhead, I usually, um, they're usually hooked in the jaw for me, mm-hmm. but smallmouth bass, walleyes, uh, they always seem to inhale flies a little yep. too much. And that's a perfect reason to have a barbless hook, just so you can just get it slid out really quick before anything gets damaged. Yeah. I can hear that for sure. Um, yeah, I think that's all I had for trying to figure out good ways to get into the two-handed game. Um, Do you know if Nasby, is he, is he still doing classes at all? Um, he does. I also do. Do you also? Yeah, there we go. So. so people can reach out to you if they want to. Yes, uh, yes, of course. And how do we uh, get a hold of you then? Um, probably my Instagram. Okay. Uh, the easiest way is, well, not everybody's on Instagram. But, what is it? Um, DJ Flashy 
fish chip or something like DJ that. flashy fish and chips. And there's a story to that. If you right, let's hear it. Uh, yep. Let's see. Uh, so early twenties back in South Dakota and I'm cooking in restaurants. And, uh, one of my high school buddies, uh, him and another friend had started a, uh, uh, a rap duo and they're kind of like almost kind of like ICP influenced. <laughs> so he was going around with the kitchen crew and just giving everybody a rap name. And of course I'm the guy that fished all the time. So yeah. I got DJ flashy fish and chips and it's like, nice. It's like, I need an Instagram handle. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'll just use that one. I like it. Yeah. Um, mine, mine is Ebbs force one. And that came about, <laughs> Oh, late nineties, early two thousands. Nike had where you could customize uh, Air Force Ones, the shoes. Like you could pick the color, the you know patterns on it, and you can, in you know, have them sew your name or whatever, whatever you wanted. And and for my entire life, life, everybody called me Ebbs. So that was right around the time that uh, uh, who sings that. Ebbs for uh, Air Force One song. Uh, Ludacris? I don't. Th- I don't think it's Ludacris. Um, oh, it anyways, the the Air Force One song came out about the same time as <laughs> Nike was letting everybody um, customize their Air Force One. So uh, Ebbs Force One just kind of stuck with with me and my friends. So that's how I got my name. What about you, GD Myers? Yeah, it's super complicated. Uh, it's just my name. It's boring. Yeah. I want, I want the name on the Instagram. Nothing fancy. Um, getting back to fishing. Oh, sure. Uh, you, you mentioned Atlantic salmon mm-hmm. is, is like your number one species to target. I've never caught one. Well, that you would like to target. Yeah. Yeah. A friend um, of mine tells me though, like the secret to being a great Atlantic salmon fisherman is having a trust fund. <laughs> I've, I've heard probably. that. I've heard that as well. So, yeah. uh, I don't have that. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, where would you like to fish? Like if you, Oh, okay. If you had, you know, two weeks vacation and you were going to go somewhere and a trust fund, probably British Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been there yet. For steelhead. For steelhead. And, you know, some of those last marine rivers where they have big steelhead that have strong runs, um, you know, a lot of the West coast steelhead is just in so much trouble anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've gone out to, uh, the Olympic peninsula, but it's just, that's just such a tough grind to do that. Yeah. So, uh, it's very enjoyable to do, but, um, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, let's get around to that, but it, it's, um, I love fishing Lake Superior and Lake Michigan, but it just doesn't necessarily feel like you're fishing for like the real steelhead. They're, they're a, a lake run rainbow in a lot of ways, but. So do you consider the, um, Lake Superior steelhead to be real steelhead? Debate. Here's the one thing that I'll say about them is, um, most of the North shore rivers have so many barrier falls very close to the lake mm-hmm. and also obstacles even before they get to the barrier falls that they can't run too far. Well, but they do run over some very amazing water and just for that athleticism, I consider them to be a steelhead yeah. just because they have to be able to do that to reproduce. Yeah. And I mean, this is a pretty heated debate and I don't want to get into pissing anybody off, but <laughs> that's um, what we're here for. Knowing and having talked to actual fisheries biologists, 
the Lake Superior strain of steelhead came from the West Coast. And they, like, interbred, as, as much as I can remember, the interbred West Coast actual steelhead, air quotes, actual steelhead, mm-hmm. with um, rainbow trout. And okay. so they do have some authentic steelheadness to them. All right. Well, I, I think if I understand, um, I don't think that they purposely bred them with, with uh, a rainbow trout. I, I think that rainbow trout, as far as Kamloops observes, mm-hmm. um, exist on the North shore because they planted them in the, in the near Duluth rivers, yep. but they also stray and they, they do, uh, um, they do reproduce with the wild strain steelhead and kind of, kind of dilute the genetics a little bit in my yeah. opinion, or from what I've heard is, you know, um, a lot of people that really want steelhead want the Kamloops to be kind of gone. But, um, no, I, I think there are some pure strain, uh, wild steelhead on the North shore and in the Brule river in Wisconsin. But, um, uh, yeah, they're just not, they're not fish that have to avoid predation from out in the ocean from orcas and yeah. sharks yeah. and That's sea a whole lions. different game. Yeah. Yeah. You got anything else on fishing? Because I know what I want to talk to Andy about. I know I'm I'm, I'm trying to get there before we, because I know we're gonna we're eventually gonna do this super deep dive into tying flies. I can understand that. Um, yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> no, let's jump into it. We, we can go back. No, we can always let's jump see. back. But yeah, let's dive into it. Let's uh, it's time to nerd out and some uh, some tying. Andy, anybody that doesn't know. Andy's Instagram or social media. He is probably one of the better fly tires I know. Um, especially, I'd imagine you have to know a lot of really good fly tires. I mean, I do. Especially and, with your, and you, what you're doing. you are up there, especially when it comes to streamers and deer hair. And I kind of feel like. Um, like I was watching a, uh, a little clip of like Charlie Craven talk about guys that talk about their specialists and you're like, Oh, I'm mm-hmm. a, you know, a streamer guy or I do since it's like, he's like, Oh, that's all bullshit. You, you know, you have to be all wrong. Of course it's Charlie Craven. So yeah, he's a- absolutely he's anything that he ever tries <laughs> is just amazing on, on, on the first try. So he gets to say that, but I, I, I feel very strongly that I'm kind of in that camp of person who's very deliberate about three or four different things that I try really hard on. And then like when I, uh, when I tie like just trout nymphs, my trout nymphs are super basic and just functional and then there's nothing, you know, so I have so many things that I, I can't do or don't do particularly well, but I'm really, really zoned in yeah. on, uh, on, on some particulars. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if it has, has deer hair on it, it's your thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can get the deer hair on the hook. Mm-hmm. I just cannot <laughs> cut it to save my life. Um, I can't make those. Are you, are you those, using the double? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got okay. it. I, I got it. <laughs> we should, <laughs> I we should go downstairs it. later on. I'll, I'll just give you, um, you know, to, to tie, uh, you know, one color and just to get a basic head on, on any kind of streamer pattern that you mm-hmm. want to do and, and to razor blade it and get it packed pretty tight is a lot easier than most people think. Um, you know, some of that 
Pat Cohen and Andreas Andersteff and Kim Maki kind yeah. of stuff is, is, uh, insane. Yeah. It is um, pretty insane. Yeah. And, and they just do it like it's nothing. Um, um, so that, that, that's a little bit harder, but to, to actually work competently work with deer hair is not as hard as most people think. You just have to, you know, there's just some, a few techniques to kind of, to have on hand. Um, how did you start tying? Did you always tie? Um, yeah. So, so I, I started tying flies early when I was fly fishing and I was always just obsessed with the Dahlberg diver. Cause that, that to me back then felt like, you know, and you have that, 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 that pattern nail. That was the thing to, no. Oh, I look I, I've, all right. Compared to me, you have that pattern nail. I mean, it's only, um, two or three years ago that I feel like fairly competent on doing that. But like five or six years ago, my, my stuff was pretty sloppy. And even before that, it was just barely functional, mm-hmm. you know? And, but I, I, I always felt like that fly, you know, back to South Dakota, largemouth bass and walleyes. And, you know, I would, I would go out with a spin rod and bring a fly rod to see what it could catch on the fly rod. The Dahlberg just seemed like the obvious thing to replace those Rapalas that I liked so much. And, um, I just had a blast catching largemouth on, mm-hmm. on Dahlbergs and, um, uh, and I was always kind of envious of like the, you know, the ones that you could buy in the store. And I used to, used to always think that those were the, the, the one that was the benchmark to try yeah. to try to try to achieve. And then, uh, uh, I can't remember what the guy's name was. There was, there was somebody down in Colorado and that did these really incredibly tight. And then, uh, Charlie Craven actually does really amazing deer hair, but, uh, you know, uh, Pat Cohen, Andreas yeah. Anderson, they kind of came out and then I, I forgot all about, you know, trying to match the store bought ones like, Oh, I gotta try to match these guys. I, I'm nowhere close to doing that, but, um, at least when I look at the store bought ones, I'm like, Oh, somewhere I just kind of slipped past that. And it's, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of fun to, to realize that, Oh, looks of progress. I, you know, that you know, you can make from starting here. And, and getting right. There. But, uh, do you remember the first fly you tied? The first fly I tied? Um, no, what's, I probably remember some of the earlier flies. What's one of the earlier ones you remember? Um, just putting like, uh, just making really sloppy woolly buggers and just, um, uh, Chinese hackle mm-hmm. on a hook to make some sort of a streamer mm-hmm. and, um, just, you know, flies that would catch fish. They were, yeah. uh, they looked good in the water. I w- I think from an early stage, I just, I, I cared the most about what the fly looks like in the water and that's buying flies. That was always the, the number one upsetter is you'd buy a fly and it, you put didn't, it in the water. It didn't just perform. It just looks like a stick in the water. It's yeah. your wig, you know, moving around, but it doesn't, doesn't have any flutter, you know, cause you, when you come from spin fishing and you have, you know, Rapala's, All the just, movement. You're, you're, yeah. you're looking at things that just move like crazy. And it's like, yeah. Oh, I want that to fly. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, so, you know, back in the nineties, you buy commercial flies that were just a little too traditional and they didn't, you know, you didn't quite have the Kelly Gallup streamer program. Going right. on yet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're like a muddler minnow yeah, and yeah. a black nose days. And oh, what's the, I don't remember looking at all that stuff. Like, does this even catch a fish? You yeah. Know, it probably works on trout, but when you, you know, want something that looks like something is injured and yeah, come get me. It, it, none of those flies, you know, as they were traditionally tied, they don't really do that. Um, what was the, what was the time period between when you started fly fishing to when you said, all right, I'm going to start tying my own stuff. Oh, that was pretty early actually. Yeah. 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 
Was it out of out of necessity for not having a, a spot close by to be able to pick up flies? Well, yeah, or that's, was that's, it? that's kind of South Dakota. Yeah, there's just not, you know, uh, Eastern South Dakota right. is not uh, fly fishing central in any, any way, shape or form. So, so it kind of came out of necessity. Like if I'm going to do this, I, I should probably start time. Yeah, because I'm not happy with what I can buy. So why don't I just build something? Okay. See if it, what was, uh, so what did you have near you when you were in, uh, Eastern South Dakota, as far as places to buy stuff, or was it just like mom and pa tackle shops to be able I to get? I think I just order a lot through Cabela's. Okay. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on my notes for Andy, I have streamers with an exclamation point after it. <laughs> That's kind of your jam. Yeah. And, and, um, and, like you, and you do it well. Steelhead intruders, I like. I like yep. building those a lot too. Um, just anything that moves in the water. Yeah. What do you like when you're making a streamer? Like, what's something you? What's real important to you in your streamers? Um. Well, going back to the two-handed rods, you anything that's too moppy becomes very, very difficult to cast. Even more so than it is when you're when you're overhead casting, because when you're overhead casting, you can shed water mm-hmm. and you can throw some pretty big stuff, and it's easy. But with the, with the two-handed rod, uh, it actually becomes detrimental to have something that's just has too much on it. So building right. building a fly that shows up in the water really well and has a lot of action, but also uh, when you go to cast it, there's almost nothing there. Like it's all illusion. Mm-hmm. So trying to build that into a fly, I think is is is. And and I also, um, you know, the, the kind of like the Kelly Gallup program where it's almost like he's trying to take things from lures and design them into a fly, right? you know, or, or building flies that are practically lures, like a drunken disorderly is almost a lure. Yeah. And, still, and you tie that one well. Yeah. It, I try to do those things and bring it back to something that I consider a fly, which my definition of a fly is just, um, can your fly line fully control the fly in the casting you right. know, so when you have guys that are building these 18 inch musky flies and you go cast it on a 12 weight and you get the heaviest sinking line you can get, um, a lot of the load in that cast is coming from the fly itself or they're water loading it, but they're mm-hmm. not the, there's no way that that fly line can per se, uh, roll cast that fly out straight. In the way. fly line needs to weigh more than the fly. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be. Yeah. So, and even in some of my bass fishing, uh, when I throw bigger Dahlbergs, you know, when they get waterlogged, uh, you're kind of in that equation where it's like 50% of the fly is casting, but also 50% of the fly is yeah. not, it's not a hundred percent of the fly line is controlling what the fly is doing. So that, that happens a lot. So I, I try to make it more in the balance that the fly line is controlling what's happening. Right. And you mentioned intruders. Um, what mm-hmm. got you into tying that the whole Two-handed rods. Uh, watching an Edward video, and then they're just, they're just building intruders in a hotel room, and they're playing around with them in a little dish of water. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just just sitting still in the water. It's crawling all over the place. Like, oh yeah, it's has this like really anemone tentacle like action. French fan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He tells some good stuff. Yes, yes. I like his sculpins. Yep, yep. And then. uh Lately, I've become kind of a Kevin Feenstra fan because that's almost like the opposite of some of the things I do mm-hmm. where it's just it's just 
it's, it's flies that are so stripped down to like the, the trigger essentials, like everything that he thinks is going to trigger. And he doesn't necessarily tie the most beautiful flies, but, uh, everything that he needs to catch fish where in his fishery, um, he has that stuff built into his fly and, and, and nothing more. So I'm mm. kind of gradually, you know, trying to taper off some, some, some more elaborate things, just some things that are just, uh, the less is more theory. Yeah. 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 I've seen that. I've seen that trend actually a lot with, you know, musky flies too. Um, specifically like in the last couple of years where it used to be these big bulky flies that people have been tying and lately I've seen them less and less material. Mm-hmm. And I think they're getting a lot better action and moving out of the mm-hmm. flies too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Uh, and they save your shoulder too. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a hundred percent true. The, the clouds or minnows that you buy in the store with like, I don't know. They always measure animal hair and pencil widths, but like, I feel like the sore ones are like Sharpie widths. Yeah. Hair. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of hair on store-bought clouser minnows, but the best clouser minnow has very few, you know, mm-hmm. bucktails on it, you know, fibers. Um, yeah. So, I mean, definitely. At one of the, I can't remember if it was the Great Waters Expo or it was a different fly show, but there was some kid that was doing these really amazingly beautiful clousers and they were so subtle and so sparse. Mm-hmm. And um, when I try to, if I try to tie one out of bucktail, I, I try to emulate that, but I, I don't feel like I can get close to what that guy was doing. And it was uh, just simple flies and mm-hmm. nothing, nothing elaborate, but he just his proportion and, and, you know, you want to go sparse, but not too sparse. You need something that shows up in the water, yep. but casts easy. And, and and also with a clouser, you know, you don't want to put too heavy of dumbbells, but you still want that thing to drop down in the water. So if you can get it, you know, really sparse, you, you can use less weight on the fly. Yeah. And that's going back to walleyes. That's a great walleye fly. It is. Yeah. The clouser. Yeah. Intruders, intruders everything work great on walleyes. Do they? Oh, really? yeah. Yeah. They love that. If you had... I'm going to go through a couple different species of fish here, but if you had one streamer, the rest of your life for trout fishing. I don't, I don't fish trout with streamers. No, no. Well, let's move on. I mean, I mean, I'll have streamers in my box. Okay. And if, if it's a good streamer day for trout, like, you know, some of those days you just have those lights out days where you just throw in a streamer and every trout in the river wants to come out after. Oh yeah. So if I, Encounter one of those days. Yeah, those are good days. But I don't, I, I, I don't actually have uh, real trout streamers because I, I think when I go trout fishing, I'm thinking about nymphing or dry fly, and and then when I go after bass or steelhead or walleyes, then I'm thinking about you know bigger things that's going to get chased down. But I don't, I don't usually play that game with trout, although I should. But so for smallmouth, what's your? If you had one, one to die with, what's your streamer? Either a Dahlberg or a craft fur minnow. Okay. Craft for a minnow catches me more fish than anything. All right. Yeah. And they're just simple and dumb and easy to tie and um, pitch them against the bank and just let them hover in the water. Let them just sit there and they get chowed mm-hmm. or if you strip them. Yeah. Whatever. And then for, uh, for steelhead, I'm assuming, you know, let's, what's your go-to intruder? Um, don't have one yet. I haven't quite figured out steelhead. And it's, it's, that's one of the fun things when I was mentioning uh, Kevin Feenstra out in Michigan. 
Um, I feel like people that fly fish and people that guide fly fishing out in Michigan really have a program dialed and they really know what those fish are going to respond to. Um, for Lake Superior um, or um, even uh, uh, the Brule River in Wisconsin, I don't think it's as well figured out. There's a few people that have it. Um, probably sculpin patterns for like the Wisconsin Brule mm-hmm. is, is the pretty obvious thing to do. Um, for the North Shore, I think I just like something that looks like a smelt. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. And then uh final one, walleyes. Um, again, that craft for craft for streamer black black. Yeah. Cause they're looking up at it and you want some of that silhouettes. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Oh, getting back to tying deer hair. <laughs> okay. I want to pick your brain on deer hair. Yeah. Matt, Matt wants to learn. This is the learning, learning cast for Matt. Yeah. Um, what, what makes good deer hair? Like, what do you look for when you go buy deer hair for making? I I usually want the longest fiber mm-hmm. that I can get and with like the thickest diameter um, that I can find. And um, I always get burnt out when I order deer hair from a catalog. Yeah, it's um, tough to order. It's like it, hackle. Yeah. You, know, you can't really order. You, you need to touch it. You need to see it. Yeah. And, um, even if I don't need anything, if I'm in a store and I see something that's a perfect hunk, I'm just buying it yep. just, just so that I have it. Even if it's a color that I don't even use <laughs> just, just because of the material is so perfect or, yeah. or, it's, or it's like, you know, when, when people tie those, those, uh, musky flies, I don't know what they're looking for in the bucktail that they use, but they have very specific things that they want out of their bucktails. Right. And, you know, if you come across one, that's just right. You buy it yep, yep, exactly. because you might not see it again. Yep. Yep. Um, what about, uh, do you spin it or stack it? Um, I'll do a little bit of spinning. Um, so there's, you do, you know, what the difference between spinning and stacking is, mm-hmm. or if I, we should maybe just go across what that is. Um, uh, Spinning deer hair is letting it wind 360 degrees around the hook shank and then just yep. tightening it and flaring it. Whereas stacking is almost like you're pancaking it yeah, on, like either, on either so the top. So if, if spinning would be 360 degrees, stacking would be 180 degrees. 180 degrees or just... Uh, or even more narrow. Keep, keeping it up, keeping it almost on a flat plane yeah. and, and then putting another stack on top of it and then on top of it. so that you yeah, get or, or under it if you're... Yeah. Going for round stacking allows you to have a uh, a more up down color pattern. Mm-hmm. So maybe you want a darker top and a lighter bottom. Yep, that's what's what stacking allows you to do. Where spinning kind of gives you the uh, uh, it gives you the roll of lifesavers. Mm-hmm. And then um, cutting. Like, where are you a razor blade or a? Scissors? Yeah, definitely a. a, a a double edged razor blade. Yeah. Um, it's all I use anymore. And I used to experiment with like uh, sandpaper. Um, I have a cottering iron or, or a cottering pen. Yeah. That what happens when you, uh, if you, if you do really super tightly packed deer hair, you're going to invariably crowd the hook eye. And the only way to get your hook eye out, I, for me is just to take the cottering pen and just burn the excess hair <laughs> away. So there's a place to put your tippet through. Right. And tie on your fly. Deer hair. Well, there's some more I could go into. On go that. into it. Yeah. Um, gel spun thread is a lifesaver. I don't, how long has gel spun thread been around? Um, Five years longer than that? Longer than that. 
a longer than I've I've been using it for at least five. I've only been aware of it for five years. Um, that's about the best thing ever. Um, like the Kevlar thread, one hundred or two hundred, two hundred. Um, and then best in here for yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, is that geeks? Is that what that is? Yeah. Thanks. Appreciate that. I'll take note. And then um, the one hundred, I think, will cut through your hair a little bit more than you want. You 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 could you could you could serviceably use it, but as it'd be a little more challenging to put any kind of pressure on the deer hair. The other thing you want to do with deer hair is generally you want to use um, two or three loose wraps before you put your final wrap that you're going to cinch down on it. Mm-hmm. And then what that does is it it um, it almost bandages this the hair. So like those, those first two wraps, they don't really cut into the hair. And then your final wrap that you put around that you're going to cinch down on actually kind of cuts while well, it, it, it pressures into the, the, the other two wraps that you have underneath it. Right. And then when you cinch down tight, um, you're less likely to cut your, you, you, you can always, you know, yeah. Crazy, if, if you've ever, tougher. if you've ever worked with deer hair and spun it or stacked it or whatever, and you pull your thread tight and you've got a bunch of, cut deer hair laying on your table. Yeah. People used to use Kevlar thread. And mm-hmm. I think the Kevlars that I've played with, they're, um, they're too bulky. Yeah. And the problem with that bulky thread is that it, um, if you want to get really tight deer hair, um, you, you really want to be able to cinch that thread as close to the hook shank as possible without cutting the hair. So a thicker thread like that would be serviceable, but um, I think that gel spun is just the best stuff for, I think the, uh, slick, the strength, the strength to diameter. Yeah. And I think the slickness of it, um, helps, you know, it slide as you're pulling yeah, it, it, yeah. it helps slide, you know, slide over it instead yeah. of cut it. The, the yeah. one problem with the slickness of that gel spun is, is getting it anchored onto the hook in the first place. So what Cohen yes. does, Cohen, Pat Cohen, he'll do, uh, he'll, uh, he'll put a thread base on the hook before he puts his hair on. But even with that gel spun, it's, it's hard to, uh, have that, stay on the hook. It, yeah. So you Matt, get a lot, Matt, pat, you get a lot. Matt Calise, um, from Loon and I have had several discussions on, we wish they would make a lightly waxed GSP thread. I think, you know, I, I use, um, feral wax. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I might start doing is just, uh, just, just wax, uh, the thread that I need to lay down on the hook shank itself. Yeah. And then when I go to spin the hair over the top of that, I'll, I'll leave it unwaxed. But I, I was thinking about trying that because I, I would like something that anchors down to the hook a little better than how the, G, the, the yeah. gel spun works. But you need the, the booger wart like uh, Davey McFarland yeah, has yeah, yeah. on his finger. You watch him, like, for, I don't know for how many years I watched him tie flies and I'm like, what is this thing on his finger? It's gross. <laughs> I wonder if that's always permanently there. Like he's just walking through. I don't know. He's got the little spot of wax on just him. Just always ready. Probably, probably. Like he forgets it's there. It's yeah. Like, oh, I, I would think he's got them on like all of his fingers or something. I don't know. Speaking of people who can tie great flies. Yes. Um, I was, I was, a. Uh, at one of the fly tying events, uh, hop the hoppers the other day. And there was a guy doing a uh, tent wing, uh, steelhead flies. And we were talking about Davey McPhail cause he, you know, does the bronze mallard flies mm-hmm. with the tent wings and, and it just, he just so naturally ties them on. It makes it look like it's. And I love when he says, Oh, it's easy. Yeah, or yeah, you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> uh, that's a lie. Yeah, it is a lie. 
Let's see, it's easy after 500,000 flies that you Exactly. Tie. That guy ties some crazy flies. Um, you kind of touched on a little bit earlier, but like, where do you, who's your inspiration for fly tying? Like, who, where do you go when you're like, I need a new pattern or. I'm pretty conservative about patterns, actually. It takes a lot for me to like get excited about a new thing. Yeah. Um, but Andreas Anderson mm-hmm. is, is like my God. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's pretty good. That's um, fair. But he even does, you know, he, he doesn't do a lot of crazy stuff. He just does a lot, uh, a few things really, really well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned Larry. What's he's, that? You mentioned Larry Dahlberg. He's like the grandfather of deer hair flies. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know too much. Fish. Um, I've always watched his YouTube videos about lure building. Mm-hmm. And that, that's always kind of interesting where he just throws a, together different epoxies and he has like you know 200 different jars of chemicals <laughs> in his shed <laughs> i remember i i had a video of that um back in the vhs days um excuse me where did he was, have some fly tying stuff that he it, yep and you know he talked about the the dahlberg diver and he showed you know three or four different ways to tie it but then he was up in canada fishing for gigantic pike mm-hmm. and he would bring a ladder out in the lake and you know a six foot ladder or whatever and he's got five feet of it underwater and he's standing up on this ladder catching these pike that are i don't know gigantic four five feet long pike and i just remember him climbing off this ladder to bear hug this pike that was seemingly bigger than he was and with with his his Dahlberg diver you know and that's that was all he was fishing yeah yeah so you can ladder fish for pike too yeah but it's got to be a sims camo ladder got it got it <laughs> it's got to be that river camo yeah so so andreas is is somebody you you look up to for yeah yeah i'm i'm trying to catch up yeah Anybody else? Um, let's see. Jerry French. Yeah. Um, probably David McPhail is a pretty obvious one. Um, it's a lot of weird. A lot of the intruder flies that I've seen online that I like, um, there's, there'll just be like a thumbnail online. I'll, I'll have no idea how I do it. It's like, but I'll, I'll see a couple of pictures out there. You know, just it's like, I am trying to, get to that dissect it and try to make your own yeah yeah or even expand upon it if if possible but i um i don't think that i've quite gotten to that one question we ask everybody is uh do you have a memorable fish like is there one fish that stands out in your mind whether caught or not caught but just like like i have a handful of fish that, that I will always remember. Um, so I like to ask people, is there a fish that you will always remember till the day you die? Those are several, but I'll pick one. Um, uh, Lake Billsby on the Cannon river. There's a dam okay. down below that. It used to be one of my walleye sneak spots. I'd actually fly around a couple of walleyes, but that was more Rapala throwing. But, um, I went back there one year with a spay rod mm-hmm. just to see that was actually the reason, 
original reason I got a spay rod is that I, I wanted to be able to, um, that spot on the river below the dam, you have a, a rock, you know, limestone wall right yeah. behind you. So you have no back cast room and it's a, it's a wide section of river right there. It's kind of a washout pool below a dam. Um, so I got a two handed rod and then one year I went down there and just was just playing around with it and, uh, just found a clouser and, uh, I snagged into something enormous and it was just running me up and down the run. I'm like, what could possibly, it was not a carp. The carp mm-hmm. doesn't move like that. It was, it was porpoising a little bit. And I was just like, holy cow, what is this? And I get it in. And it's, it's a four foot paddle fish oh, wow. that had found its way all the way up from the Mississippi river. Yeah. I just wanted to go up the cannon and it got it kind of, I think it, it was low water up there and it just kind of got itself stuck in there and we couldn't land it. It, it, it got snagged in the bill and a couple of kids were down there and they were trying to grab it by the tail right. and they grabbed it by the tail. As soon as they got it by the tail, it unhooked on the front and just did a kick and went out. But it's like, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good fish to remember. Yeah. That one, that one will stick with you for a bit. <laughs> Well, you said, so with all this tying, um, and you do, you spay casting lessons, do you do any sales here of your flies, like custom orders or anything um, like that? Yeah. And I uh, welcome inquiries on my Instagram. Um, that's kind of my- D- DJ Flashy Fish and Chips. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you just do DJ Flashy and Fish, yeah, it'll probably just come up. They'll find you. <laughs> Hopefully, I think. Well, or just Andy Selvig. Yeah. Probably do a search that way too. Um, so you do like custom orders, mm-hmm. um, people can yeah, reach out to you and get small batch stuff. I'll tie some for some regional fly shops here and there too. Awesome. Awesome. That is, do you have any, uh, you have any questions for us? Uh, I don't. That's fair. Yeah. I feel like people always ask that at the end of podcasts and I was right. like, oh, I should have a question. <laughs> no. We, I think, we, we could talk about barbecue. Yeah, we could. Yeah. We should actually talk about barbecue a little bit. Um, yeah, Andy by day is a chef. So I was pretty intimidated cooking him dinner tonight. That's fair. It's, it's fair to be intimidated. You did, you did a hell of a job though in the chicken. Yeah. Room. Anything that comes to, off a grill is always yeah, going to be amazing. They got a little dried out and crispy, but they're still pretty good. But uh, they were extra crispy. They weren't and dried out. They were. Let's talk about knives. Okay. Yeah, actually that's, that, that's, yeah, let's, let's dive into knives a little bit. So, so pre podcast, we, uh, nerded out with Andy on knives and sharpening knives mm-hmm. and he sharpened mine. One of my chef knives. I think your knife was already pretty sharp just from the, yeah. the little gadget that you have that, that mm-hmm. I was pretty impressed how well all that, that, that sharpens it's, it's, yeah, it. Yeah. It does. All right. Yeah. Um, what do you look for in a knife? Um, I don't know. I'm kind of undecided. I, I uh, play with different things. Cause we were talking about some of the differences between Japanese mm-hmm. and German knives. And yeah. sometimes one you said is, the Japanese are more hard. Um, harder steel. Yeah. They, they, they definitely like to temper their steel a little harder. They're, they're more into edge retention, uh, which often means that a knife is a little bit more brittle and a little bit easier to chip than what a Western knife is. Or if you bend it out of shape, it's harder to get it back true. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas the, the German steels are just a little bit softer, a little bit more durable. Um, not such a big deal if you drop the knife on the floor. It's a little more rescuable. But um, I don't know. I, uh, I, uh, um, 
I've got a Kramer knife that I really love because the build on it is just perfect. It's it's kind of the perfect blend of uh, Western and uh, or Eastern kind of features of, mm-hmm. uh, of different knives. So it's like a it's a carbon blade, and it has like a, I think it's like a sixty one Rockwell hardness, and um, it's just a, a really tall blade. <clears throat> but you can also put a really super fine edge on it, and uh, but it'll also take apart squash. So some of your, some, some <laughs> yeah. of your, some of your daintier Japanese knives aren't so great, good for taking apart chickens or taking yep. apart a, you know, a butternut squash or an acorn squash, something like that. But the, this Kramer knife is kind of, it's good balance between everything. What's your ideal chef, chef knife length? Um, you know, I like fairly long. I like, um, like a nine or 10 inch blade. Yeah. Um, and then like a shorter knife, that's just like a little, like a six or seven that will, uh, a little bit more nimble, but mo- mm-hmm. most of the time I'm using like a, yeah, a longer knife. What do you uh, recommend for, you know, somebody who's, let's say they're getting out of college and trying to finally get their own place where their roommates aren't going to ruin all their knives. Oh. They want to go out and, you know, what Chicago knives? cutlery. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Chicago cutlery is probably a good one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you probably know. Just any, any German knife. Yeah. You know, um, Hankel or Wustoff. It, you know, what's kind of cool. It's like, um, uh, yeah, like a Heinkels or Wustoff. They'll, they'll make some knives that are pretty high quality. Like you can always, um, a lot of times the expense of the knife is sometimes just in the handle mm-hmm. and just some of the accoutrements that come with that. But, uh, as far as, uh, getting a nice forged blade with a German knife, um, you can get like a Grand Prix Wustoff and it just has like a, a molded plastic blade on it, but you're, or, or the handle, I'm sorry, is a molded plastic handle, but, um, but you get the same steel and the same blade as their, their high end knives. Got so. it. How many knives is a serious cooker chef need? Three. Three. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, a, a you, chef, you, a you, pairing you, and you, a, you end up growing a collection for different things, but I mean, for, for your day in day out use, uh, a pairing knife, a chef knife. And I like a Santoku. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people recommend having a serrated knife, but I almost never, if, if you, keep, yeah, I if can't you, think if, of where I would use one. I haven't, if, I haven't felt the need for one yet. If you keep a chef knife with a good edge on it, there's not a lot of use for a serrated knife. Except what about for a, a big giant cleaver. Oh yeah. Like a whacking stuff. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Cutting chicken. Well, if you're a butcher, I mean, yeah, you, yeah I imagine. quartering up deer. Yep. Yeah. Come in handy. Do you, uh, do you do any hunting, wild game, anything like that? Um, I grew up in South Dakota fishing or uh, hunting ducks and geese and, and up, upland, you know, okay. grouse and pheasant. But uh, yeah, it was always a terrible shot. <laughs> it, it's, it's like, you know, fly fishing, you know, if you can't cast, you just, you know, you just go out in a soccer field and bang away at it until it starts to take shape. But like with shooting, it's always, it's always a lot of money to yeah. invest on getting yourself into being a better shot. That's true. You're just uh, blasting through uh, boxes of shells. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Especially if it comes to waterfall hunting now that the cost of uh steel shot and yeah. tungsten and all those other things. Oh, is that going crazy? Now. Oh yeah. Okay. You know, I, I can't imagine people are spending 25 bucks on a, box of shells now to go waterfall hunt for that high speed, high density stuff to okay. drop, okay. drop that. But yeah. I don't know, grouse hunt, you can go and spend $8 on a box and throw some lead out there and yeah. you'll be just fine. So we talked um, pre-podcast about grills and you're a green egg guy. Um, well, I'm not, 
uh, that's what I have. And, yeah, you know, it's kind of an investment. So it's like, if it, I, I would almost like an offset smoker because I feel like, um, your heat and your smoke on the green egg kind of have to all come out of the same place. And it's kind of tough. Although I, right. I, I did buy that. Um, I was talking earlier that I had that, uh, the Wi-Fi blower. Oh, the blower for yeah, the that, that bottom. Keeps it, yeah, bottom damper. Yeah. Um, trying to figure out how to come up with like the thin blue smoke. Yeah, uh, and I think maybe on an offset, that's probably easier. Probably easier to get that to go through. Yeah, yeah, just a clean burn on your smoke that doesn't uh, uh, ignite your, or heat up the cabinet more than 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 where you want it set at. But um, I have pretty good luck playing around with the green egg, but. Yeah, and like I said, I've we only have ours. so much room for those things. I, yeah, I don't want to get that crazy about it. Yeah, I I have a Weber charcoal grill, a gas grill, Weber gas grill, and then like uh, I don't know what they call them. It's like an electric smoker, isn't it? No, it's a charcoal. Is it? Um, but it's just like a tube bullet smoker or something. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. And I, I tell the wife, I'm like, yeah, I need like this smoker here. And she's like, no, you already have three grills. You don't need any more grills. I'm like, I don't think you can have too many grills. No, you can't. We expanded. <laughs> it's like fly rods. We expanded our, uh, <laughs> our deck last summer. And the only thing well, fly I can rods think. Will all go in one closet. Yeah. That's true. Grills go on one deck. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, uh, yeah, we expanded our deck last summer. I'm like, well, now I just have more room for another grill. I've yeah. got the green egg and I've got the, um, you've seen those Blackstone flat top griddles. It's like a 36 inch oh, wow. four burner it's flat neat. top griddle. Yeah. Um, I've done everything That's from, fired or? no, it's gas. Okay. But he um, can do like 10 pounds of bacon at once. Yeah. That's how you season it. I always recommend people, if you're going to season your black top, you put as much bacon as you can fit on it. <laughs> and then, uh, you go from there, but yeah, I've done everything from fish fries to, um, uh, fried rice. I mean, that's, you get burgers that one day that they turned out pretty good. The, oh, wow. Yeah. The burgers turned out really nice. Um, yeah. If you want to cook 300 pancakes for you and your buddies, <laughs> it's definitely the way to go. Um, yep. I was just impressed with the fish fry portion of it. Fish was good. Just a little bit of grease on the top and keep, keep flipping and going. And at least you're not cooking fish inside your house. Yeah. That's always the way to go. But, uh, so offset smoker, what would you, if you had like one meat to put on your offset smoker, your dream offset smoker, what would you have? Um, I'm still trying to master the brisket. The brisket. Yeah. That, that's the thing. It's just it's expensive cut of meat to get. Yes. Yeah. It, it shouldn't be and, expensive as it is. But. Right. Yeah. I think beef is just up quite a bit. Is that what's going yeah, on? I yep. think so. Maybe, maybe pork brisket. Yeah. Bacon. Just bacon. Where do you, uh, being a chef and, and liking to put stuff on the smokers there, where do you like to source your meat from? Um, I like St. Paul meat shop quite a bit. Um, okay. just cause it's local farmers and it's kind of, a, um, I don't know if they really do the, the whole animal butcher thing, but I think they really do try. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a kind of tough thing to do, but, um, I like that shop quite a bit. Um, for briskets, I often just go to Costco. I mean, you could get an entire brisket. I think a for lot of like people 45 do. bucks. And yeah. How do you feel about tri-tip? Love it. Yeah. 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 I That's tried, great. I pot. tried cooking one. I didn't do a very good job. At, at work, we make pot roasts out of them. Yeah. And it just makes the craziest pot roast. 
I feel like that's one of those cuts of meat though that lately that the price has just mm. skyrocketed. Like oh, I feel like I spent five thirty five dollars on one tri tip, and I'm like, this is not worth it. I feel like five years ago you could have gotten that same cut of meat for ten bucks. Yeah, and for whatever reason, they're it's like the new brisket. It's because yep. people are doing recipes with them, and I wonder but, if it's just because it's popular. Yeah, exactly. It's okay. getting popular, and they're just you know they're taking advantage of the of yeah. the market and just trying to make money off of. It's not, it's not a fantastic piece of meat. No. I mean, you have to cook it's like it right. It's like a sirloin. Yeah. Um, chuck roast. I haven't like played pot with roast, that. Smoked pot roast, I heard, is supposed to be like on par with brisket as far as I think actually technique and taste. I think there's actually more flavor probably in a chuck mm-hmm. than there is in a brisket. I, w- I would agree. Yeah. Although I, I, I love the point off a of brisket. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm not such a big fat uh, fan of the flat uh, part of it, but yeah, yeah. Uh, they they just tend to dry up, especially if you're just cooking a flat by itself. That's good for like tacos and stuff the next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I've been wanting to do a brisket chili. Yeah, you know, smoke a good brisket and yeah. then put the chili in a Dutch. And then smoke that on the green egg. Double smoke. That's actually what I end up doing because my girlfriend is vegetarian and I don't have any kids. And, you know, if I don't invite a bunch of people over for a barbecue or something like that, if I do a brisket, it's like, okay, what do we do with the rest of it? Because it, it, uh, if it sits in the fridge a little bit long, it stales up for you. Yeah. So if you make, if you build a chili out of it and yeah. freeze it, that's uh, pretty good thing. Well, next do. time you do a, a brisket, give us a call. Yeah, you let okay. us know. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll come, definitely we'll, come We'll bring help. the beer. Yeah. <laughs> I, t- I took a brisket into Mend the other day. The Did you? Fly shop in Minneapolis. And, yeah. Was Mike pretty appreciative of uh, they were, they the brisket were, coming they in? Were, they were pretty excited about the brisket. Did you guys have brisket on Alternative Church on Sunday? or No, I do Alternative Church on Wednesday because it's my day off and it was too cold to go fishing. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was like five or ten degrees out. So I was like, well, I smoked a brisket. And I said, hey, you guys want brisket? What do you mean? I'm bringing some brisket in. It was probably better than the. You didn't, even, you didn't even understand what I was saying. Yeah. And then I bring it, show up with a with a yeti with a brisket in it. And yeah, because like some Mike slider buns. And Mike stuff. usually eats like microwave dinners and stuff, right? Or, or, or just park, pizza. parkway pizza. Yeah, yeah there's, there's okay. always a parkway pizza box in the corner somewhere. That's good pizza though. So, and we've talked about this before in the podcast. If you want to, you know, go to a local fly shop and get to know them, we usually say, you know, bring some beer, introduce yourself. You've brisket. taken it to a new oh, level. Yeah. Bring a brisket. And I think uh, you're going to get all <laughs> the advice that you've ever had. Yeah. Really, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a good idea. Well, Andy, thank you. Oh, thank you, guys. Um, Thanks for coming out. Appreciate it. Good podcast. I think uh, we'll have to have you on again and oh, I'd nerd, appreciate it. nerd out more on fly tying. Okay. Maybe we can do a, a, a fish you know, a fish in a podcast day and yeah, see what comes out of it. Yeah. We've done a podcast on the river. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Those are usually fun. We'll usually bring the grill out. It's yeah. not as, as fancy as tonight. It's usually hot dogs, but uh, they're, they're damn good hot dogs. I'll tell you that much. Hot dogs are life. <laughs> there, should be, there should be an ice fishing podcast. That would be yeah. like you have rattle reels set up in the, and you just do your own podcast and tip ups. Oh, hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just, do you just hear the door slamming shut and yeah. three guys sprinting out to the, but the rattle reels, yeah, get those going. But uh, yeah, that's we'll what, have to. That's what, that's what we used to do. We used to have like our, 
we'd have our ice racks kind of like wagon wheeled around and yeah. we'd have the center area where we play cards and everybody had their lines down with the rattle reels. And then you'd hear something going off. It's like, who's this? Yeah. So run off from the game. And I, I remember, uh, cause ice fishing usually is not, it's not about it, catching fish. It's it's not productive enough <laughs> no. to just sit there and watch your line. You, you gotta no. have something else yep. to do. We do a little cookout or we would go ice fishing and, uh, you know, everybody had their line in their shack and then they'd have a tip up set up out of ways. And I was always good for walking past people's tip ups and kicking the flag. up. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just stand off to the side and wait for them to peek out of their shack and see their, their flag up. And then the, you, the big st- you would stand out of view. I assume. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And then the big sprint to see, you know, what's, you know, I got a vision. Yeah. There's nothing there. We've done. The, I, was, uh, I was that guy in, in college. I remember we don't be that guy. <laughs> we take uh, we take like bush heavies or bud heavies, and uh, it'd be nighttime. He'd take somebody's rig and bring their hook up and just get it under the the um, tab of the beer can and then drop it back down and then put the flag up. So then they go and they they nice. start pulling and they feel the weight and they're pulling and they're pulling and pulling. And all of a sudden they just pull up a beer can and man would they be pissed. But. Uh, the how, could, how could you be mad at a at a beer can? Having, because they had to go outside. It was probably zero or ten below beer? zero. Yeah, it's not the beer they wanted, though. I'll tell you that much. We had two rattle reels go off at the same time uh, once, and uh, ended up being two people fighting the same twenty-seven inch walleye. Oh, <laughs> nice! Just back and forth until they figured out what was happening. Yeah. Okay, I'll just give you some slack and hold it up and. and yeah. Both their rigs in the mouth of the fish. That's a grumpier old man. I yeah. feel like yeah. uh, situation. Exactly. That's a great movie. I think uh, last year I was up with a couple of college buddies. We were up on Lake the Woods, and it was pretty slow fishing Friday, all day Saturday. And then Sunday morning at like 6.30 in the morning, we wake up to the rattle reels just going off in the house one after another. <laughs> and it's like 12, 13-inch sauger, just one after another. We're pulling up. We're like, we got to pack up. But every time you'd put a minnow back down and drop it on, another one would hit. You mm-hmm. just keep pulling up. They up were running up. through, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Waited waited all weekend for a 30-minute window of fish. Just That's how it goes. That's yeah. actually one of my favorite fish. I used to keep aquariums. Uh, I had like, God, I, I think I had like 120-gallon at one point. And That's a big aquarium. Or was it 90? I can't remember. It was it was big. But um I'd go down to fish uh, Yankton, South Dakota, below Gavin's Point Dam on the on the on the Missouri River, mm-hmm. and uh, every once in a while I catch these little sauger that were only like you know four to six inches long. I brought like four of them home in a bucket <laughs> and just throw them in the. And they were the coolest fish in the aquarium because they um they really like current a lot. So if you just if you just have them in the aquarium and there's no current, they you know since they're wild fish, they'll try to swim through the glass wall all the time and, yep. and, and they won't just settle down. But if you just take like a pump, like a, a pump to operate your filters and just put it in the aquarium like a power head. And, and, and like a power head and just let it jet some water, then they're entertained and, they're and they all just like, sit in there. They're, they're all sitting in the current and just like, you know, porpoising around in the, in the little jet stream. And, right. and then, the, and finally they're happy and they're not like trying <laughs> to swim through the walls and try to find somewhere else to be. But, did you wait till they grew up enough and then put them on the frying pan later? Oh, that would, <laughs> that's his friend. I, yeah. I mean, it, there you are your friends. Yeah. Come on now. You, you never name your farm. Actually, guys. I thought about that, but I think that would be, they probably, it probably taste really skunky. Cause it, yeah, that's aquarium true. Aquarium is a pretty concert. Uh, um, um, it's not an ideal 
place for a fish no. to live. So I, I think that would be. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. I had to ask. I mean, they are tasty little morsels, but mm-hmm. it's fair enough. So DJ Flashy Fish and Chips. On Instagram. On Instagram. Do you have the Facebook at all? Uh, I do. It's just uh, Andrew Selvig. Okay. Yeah. For your spay casting fly order. Fly order. Yeah. yeah. Instagram is the best way to reach you. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, oh, easy you. link. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll get it there. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, like I said, thanks again for coming out. I think we've covered everything from uh, walleye fishing to uh, spay casting, dice fishing, yeah. knife sharpening. Deer hair. Yep. Deer hair. Awesome. You thanks, sharp knives for the deer hair. Yeah, exactly. And as always, um, 3BT Media, Brown Tron Bridge Beers. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. Um, you know, if you... Uh, like this episode be sure to give us a comment or rating um follow us download the episode smash the like smash that like button we've got stickers and koozies uh feel free to throw us a direct message or instagram we can get those out to you thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time yeah